You're listening to The Community Pulse, a podcast about developer relations, community management, and all things tech advocacy. Let's see what our hosts are chatting about this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Community Pulse. I am SJ, one of your hosts. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about what it takes to assess an online community. Um, So creating a place for your specific community to gather online is a challenge that just about every developer relations or community team is likely going to have to face at some point, whether it's because your executive team is asking you to create this space or you see a need for it. In today's episode, we're gonna be talking to two specialists in the community industry about what to keep in mind when evaluating how to create a place for your community to gather online, as well as a number of other great things. So first, we're gonna kick off with a word from our sponsors and then we'll get started. The world's best software teams use CircleCI to deliver quality code with confidence. As the largest continuous integration and delivery platform, CircleCI empowers engineers to seamlessly take ideas to execution at scale. The CircleCI platform is optimized for developer productivity, speed, and confidence. CircleCI understands how engineering teams work and how their code runs. Companies like Intuit, Apple, and Spotify use CircleCI to improve productivity, release better products, and get to market faster. Visit communitypulse.io slash CircleCI to get started. Awesome. I think we're ready to get started. Uh, So, of course, you know, SJ, thanks so much for the intro. Mm -hmm. And we should probably welcome our other host, Marion Wesley, if you want to jump in. And, of course, we we can't do the show without guests because otherwise it's just the after pulse. Um, so please welcome the two people that we brought to talk specifically about online community platforms, John O'Bacon and Noel Flowers. Uh, go ahead, Noel. John, introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about you. You go first, Noel. You're way more interesting than I am. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction as well, John. So my name's Noel. I work at Comstore, which is the team behind the Community Club, and I do community education there. So all of my work is really about trying to kind of spread knowledge about the community field, kind of like a rising tides raise all ships type of situation. Um, But before that, I was the community manager at Teachable. So I've gone through this whole process of like evaluating a community platform and making software decisions in in a really like in the weeds way for a small software company. So that's kind of where I come to this conversation from. I'll kick it over to you, Jono. Hello, everyone. What a lovely set of faces to be talking to today. So uh, I'm Jono. I've been building communities for my whole career. I'm a consultant. I work with uh, various companies to help them uh, build engaging communities. Um, uh, And and outside of that, I just like creating content about how to build communities effectively. So I I write a lot of blog posts, do YouTube. I've got a couple of podcasts and and things like that. And uh, and I love heavy metal because it's great. And anyone who doesn't like heavy metal is wrong. And let's get that clear right now. So... We're just going to start with controversy, apparently. Apparently. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense because one of the first things that I want to do is start with the basics and and the definitions. Um, So our first question is a big one, but I'd love it if we could figure out uh, how each of us defines community just to start with the basics and make sure we're all on the same page here. 
John, I right. will we'll kick it to you first. Yeah. All right. I saw my video feed appear. I'll take that as a cue. Um, <laughs> so, so to me, I, I define communities as a group of people who get together with a shared interest or a shared purpose. Um, and I, I subdivide that into three different models. Um, I actually just put a video out about this recently. Consumer communities where people come together because they like the same thing, like Taylor Swift or Iron Maiden. Um, collaborate, uh, uh, champion communities uh, go the extra mile and they create things that add value to the community. So they don't just chat about things. So they do Q&A and events and meetups and all kinds of stuff. And then collaborator communities are people who come together to create technology. And I subdivide that into inner collaborator, which is people who build open source projects and they work in the same thing. So you need a level playing field there or outer collaborator communities where people build tech that goes on top of somebody else's platform, such as a WordPress plugin or an app for an app store or something along those lines. But fundamentally, I think what flows through all of this is the sense of being part of a social movement. And that's what gets people passionate about it. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that you've broken that too, Jono. I, so when I talk about like what community is, I always like to just quickly acknowledge that community has like a cultural meaning to us and that in my mind, there's like the brand version of community and then there's like the community in our lives. And I don't think they really compete. <laughs> They're just kind of two different things. Um, that don't necessarily like draw focus from each other, but they inform each other. But inside the kind of community for a brand kind of setting, um, I really just think of this as like programs that brands run to connect their members to each other. Um, and why this is like important to me to think about it this way is a, a lot of times I hear people talking about like, oh, communities are so hard to measure or they're like weaker in uh, analytics than other company programs that you might think of. But I actually think that it's the exact opposite. So I think communities are, it's like almost like we're designing an experiment for a brand. So we're thinking like, oh, if I were to put all of these people in this group and I'm gonna try to do a bunch of things to like optimize their experience, I'm gonna make these hypotheses about how it works. And then I'm gonna try to apply it to my audience or my brand as a whole. I think community has this like almost supernatural ability to be measured and analyzed in comparison to other things for brands. I love that. I love that. And I, I agree. I don't think there's a competition between, you know, communities in our personal lives and, and brand communities. Um, the extra piece that I usually add on there is that it's a group of people who also, you know, develop and share those practices and share, share things among each other that help individuals in the group thrive. Right. So there's a, a real sense of, community, uh, sense of, of wanting to help each other out um, and make sure that other people are enabled to to thrive in the same ways. Yeah. I would also just add on that I feel like um, the healthier a community is, the more it lends itself to the sort of word community and the emotions we associate it to it as a human. Like, you know, the contribution, the, you know, ability to help each other, that care. I think the 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 sort of more connection that's happening in a branded community, the more of that sort of like human contact and human care that you actually see. Um, and uh, I agree that that stuff is measurable. And I think that it's not so much the fact that it's not measurable, it's the fact that it's uh, there's a disconnect between um, having humans connect and like bottom line capitalist ROI, right? So that's therein lies the tension. And I think that uh, making that case to, you know, the CFO about the value of community versus the, you know, head of community is, is where we run into some of our challenges. 
Right. And I, I, I just, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to add just one thing on there. Cause we talked a lot about contribution, but we didn't, a word we didn't, I didn't hear a lot of was participation. I think the key to community, whether you're talking about working with tech communities or open source, or you're talking about working with your local community is participation. Mm-hmm. It's not just location. You can't just be there and you can't just say like, you know, okay, well I gave $5 to the cause. That's good enough. In order to be really a member of a community, you need to participate. You need to mm-hmm. actively be a part of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's key. You know, something um, that I think, you know, we often face, I think, as as community leaders, we often face this question of, yeah, it, what is the tangible and the intangible benefits of communities? And I actually, I think we all need to just ultimately accept, and I, I'm sure everybody here agrees with this, we'll never figure this stuff out. Like, you'll never be able to model a community into a spreadsheet. I just don't think it's possible. And I like that because that's the magic behind it, is that it's like, I don't want a formula for how to make a song or how to create a beautiful piece of art, or I don't want a formula for how people fall in love with each other. It happens because it's a natural human thing, and that's the magic of it. And I think um, there's, there's that tension between we all know that that's there with communities and businesses, they have a language in which they model success, right? That's dollars and it's engagement and it's, you know, net promoter score and things like that. But I think some of this will always be a mystery and that will always keep it interesting. I love that. I love that there's still that mystery behind it. And it's, it's one of those, when you know, you know, kind of situations. I think, I think like you said, that's intrinsic to, a community and, and it's part of the reason why we all have such a hard time going, oh, well, but this is what it is because it's hard to really put a finger on always. Suddenly the song Building a Mystery is playing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the anthem for this episode. I, I hate it. to say it, but I feel like that was the most Canadian thing SJ's ever said on it. That's what I'm here for, that's what I'm here for. So with with this notion in mind of, you know, there's a little bit of, of mystery to it, a little bit of, um, you know, a lot of collaboration, a lot of participation. I want to move on to the second term that we want to define, which is online community platforms. And part of the reason we added this question was because when we were talking about this topic as hosts, some of us were bringing up, well, oh, it includes this, it includes these tools, it includes these other things. And other hosts were going wait, that's, you consider that to be an online community plot? Really? Oh, okay. I never would have considered that. So I'd love to hear from our guests first, what you think an online community platform is, what that means to you. You know, is it a, is it a tool? Is it a place to connect? Are there certain things that are required in order for it to qualify as a, a community platform? Um, and then we'll, we'll move on to how do we then know what tools to choose? Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll start by just saying that I have a very like concrete brain. So the way that I think about these things is very like I thrive off definitions, even though I know that there's like so much loosey goosiness in how we think about these things. But the way that I think about it is like there's the overall community infrastructure of like tooling. And that might include things that are like engagement tools, or that might even include StreamYard or like YouTube and things that we use to facilitate all these different parts of community. But when I think about uh, community platforms, I'm really like honing in on what's the home base for the community. And a lot of times, like, even though I think communities need to transcend this sense of forum, uh, what that means is like, where's the main place that I go to access like information and to communicate with other people. And a lot of times that is some type of like forum based platform in my mind. 
Yeah, I have a similar I have a similar view, um, which is uh, to me, the goal, the ultimate goal here is to build an amazing community experience. And the way I tend to look at it is, um, you know, you've got different levels of familiarity with what you're trying to do here. Right. And I tend to model this in marketing terms as cold, warm and hot traffic out there. And community platforms are the pieces that we put in place to to serve that relationship. Um, so to me, a community platform in uh, in a literal sense is something such as Comsor or something such as Discourse or Vanilla or something along those lines. It's a tool that's specifically designed to facilitate community. But I tend to think of that in a chain of things, right? Uh, you know, so you'll have email automation platforms, you'll have analytics tools, you'll have video platforms, production platforms, anything that a, uh, that a community member touches to give them the best possible experience and add the most value to the community for them. I kind of consider it under the same umbrella. Yeah, it's like part of the community stack. But I think for yeah. the most part, when we think about like, if a brand comes to me, for example, and says like, can you make a recommendation for a community platform? I'm not necessarily gonna be like, oh, use MailChimp or whatever. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm really thinking about those home-based forum platforms. Yeah. Can I have a take a moment for a mini rant? Because the one thing that does <laughs> bug me um, is when people refer to social media platforms as community platforms. Because uh, I'm not sure I'd necessarily agree with that. Or more specifically, when people refer to users of platforms as community members, right? So for example, I don't think people on Twitter are community members. I think they're users of social media. And I think people build communities where Twitter is a tool that they use as part of building their community. But I don't think if just because you've got a user on your platform that necessarily they're quote, quote, community members. To me, a community member is somebody who, who joins together with other community members and that organization, if it's a company behind it, and then creates value or consumes value. They participate and they and or they create. So just being a, a subscriber of a platform, for example, doesn't necessarily make you a community member. So I, I have to ask you more about this, about, <laughs> um, sorry, just Got jumping it. in here for, for, for that topic specifically. Um, I, because we talked about tooling before and platforms, I'm curious about what is missing um, from that, that would not qualify as a community because there are sub communities, um, bringing up Twitter specifically that mm -hmm. kind of form, for yeah. instance, like black Twitter or tech Twitter, or even VC Twitter. Um, how are those, what is missing from those specific subgroups who are on those platforms that would not qualify that as community? Oh yeah. So let me, let me, let me be clearer in, in I'm, I'm being Unclear, predictably unclear. So I think your example there, Wesley, is is absolutely a community because I think that's a group of people who formed on Twitter around um, a mission and an ethos. Absolutely. What I'm referring to is Twitter as a company saying uh, all of our users, they're, out, they're, they're community members as if they're like part of one giant Twitter community. I wouldn't consider that a community. But I think when you, when you get people who form together into groups, um, and they uh, use Twitter as, as how they communicate and how they engage and share information absolutely counts as a community. I also uh, think that in the context of like making recommendations for brands, I would think that a brand has a little bit less power to influence a community building like that and to have some type of like niche ownership over that type of space versus creating this like really owned platform outside of Twitter. But like, I agree that 
there are sub communities on Twitter, but, and they get that like badge of community honor in like our hearts and minds. But at yeah. the same time, I wouldn't necessarily make it as like a platform recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another example I'd give there would be GitHub, right? Like to me, the communities in GitHub are primarily in the projects themselves. Um, they form together to build a piece of software. Um, but then it's easy to refer to the whole GitHub user base as a community. And I'd consider that less, I'd consider that more of a user base than a, than a specific community. Because, I mean, arguably there's people who are there because of GitHub, but I think most people are there because of the project. It's interesting, it becomes kind of this like meta question, because I know that a lot of brands kind of look at their community as for example, it's funny that you mentioned MailChimp, Noel, because I work for MailChimp. Um, but so I'll just use them as a top of mind example. But um, you know, in my opinion, there's not necessarily a MailChimp community, although that could be, you know, that could serve certain purposes for certain types of conversations. But um, say from from a more holistic perspective, maybe it's the email marketing community that you want to connect with more. So I'm just sort of thinking about how we get into this weird world where like not just Twitter who wanted the all Twitter users to be part of the Twitter community, but this weird question of like, how do brands decide which broader or more niche community is the right community to invest in? And like this question of like, a lot of companies will just be like, oh, let's build it around our brand. But at the end of the day, like most like small businesses, for example, just want to be effective and grow their business. They don't really necessarily care that like it's MailChimp.com. That's the company that's helping them get there. Those are the tools that are helping them get there. So um, I find that there's often confusion around where to kind of focus that approach. Well, I think I think this also kind of goes back to the issue that we had a, a while ago, we did this on an episode of the difference between like developer, especially in tech communities, developer marketing and developer relations with, you know, with developer relations, you're trying to enrich a community and you might use something like Twitter. You might say, you know, the members of my community. But when you start saying like the members of brand community, what you're really focusing then on is marketing and not community as much. Um, right. So, and I mean, like I've even in a lot of the things that we've done at Deverly, like we advise against that. Like chances are whatever you're doing, there's already an existing community. Plug into that, participate, be there. Do not come into the game and say, you know what? We're starting a brand new community. Add yeah. value to those existing communities. Yeah. Only, yeah. only wearing the t-shirts that we produce. <laughs> That's it's actually like a, a perfect segue. Oh, sorry, John. You were going to say something. No, just real quick. I was just going to say, I think you know, what you were just saying there as well is that there's, there's kind of a, a scoping challenge there as well, you know, um, where, for example, I, I, I've been working with a, a, a database company recently. And one of the things that we started beginning the engagement was people don't go to a database community or they don't use a database because they care about the database specifically, right? They're building something else, right? They're building an application or a platform or a service or something along those lines. So they usually care about something that's at a higher level. And I think there's this really complicated match between, okay, well, how do we create a community that adds value for our product or our service? But in reality, our customers, our users, they care about something much bigger than that. And where is that balance between where that fits in? That to me is always such a meaty, interesting problem to solve. Yeah. And what I would add to this too, is that all of the discussions that we have about trying to like parse out terms, I think they can start to feel kind of like gatekeeper -y. Like we're trying to say mm. this thing is, and this thing is not. 
And I think what's really important about these discussions is that it's actually about deciding what tactics are fit for your project and not about kind of labeling one thing as like inside the like realm of legitimate and one thing is outside of it. Yeah, I agree. 100%. This is uh, a great transition over to our next topic, which is strategy around community. Um, there's some questions here, um, but before we get to that, I would love to get a little feedback of when is the right time to actually form a community. And uh, let's start with you, uh, Noel. Yeah, so I think I make most of my decisions in, in like when I, I'm gonna launch a new product and I see a community as a product based off of user research. So if I was going into a new um, scenario, like my absolute first step would be to try to talk to like 10, 15, 20 people that I'm building for and try to get their feedback on it. And there are times where they're going to say like, no, do not build this. I do not want this at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think in my mind, there's a community can be formed at any point of the process, but to Noel's point, I think there's got to be a real clear level of value and the people that you can understand that from are going to be, you know, your constituents that you're building the community for. Um, I, I tend to take a different approach depending on where my clients kind of sit in the process. So for example, if somebody's brand new, <clears throat> they're evaluating a community, they don't know, really know if they want it. The, 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 there's a lot of questions there around the, valid, the validity of whether it's uh, something they should even focus on. And where I typically will start there will be audiences. Like who are, your, who are the audiences that you care about? How do we prioritize them? And how do we really zone in on the pain points and the roadblocks that your audiences are facing so we can invert those and generate a clear value proposition so the community is just going to be an indispensable part of how they work with you. But if I come into a business where, or an organization where they've already got a community, it's not really working out for them. They're not getting the results that they want. Then to me, that's, there's like a layer of optimization at that point to figure out, okay, well, where are the, where are the leaks in the, in the pipe? Um, but then once we've identified and, and, and fixed some of those leaks, how do we then take a step back and say, well, is this the right overall strategy in terms of what you're focusing on? Um, and it's it, it's complex, I think, because ultimately, a lot of companies have the same general goals, like it's growth and it's brand recognition and value. Um, but I think what they're actually secretly wanting to achieve varies dramatically. Like for some people, you know, it, it, it can zone in much more on brand and kind of like um, just visionary influence in a particular industry. Or for some, it's just all about money. Um, and I think when we, we kind of need to delve under the covers a little bit, and that doesn't necessarily come out in some of those beginning conversations. And I think there's also a big difference between companies that are saying, hey, we need to invest more in our community members versus we're at a point now where we need a, a quote unquote owned community, right? Something that is, you know, forum.comunda.org rather than, hey, we're gonna engage with people on Stack Overflow or on Twitter or these yeah. other places, but like we own this community, we have a way to contact these people. And that's one of the things that I'm curious about is, and I think we've alluded to this a little bit, but how do you, what are some of the things that you notice when customers are, or clients or companies that you're working with are, are saying, hey, we think we need this owned community rather than sticking to engaging people where they where they already are. Is there like, I'm gonna 
ask an intentionally controversial question because I'm fairly certain there's not an answer to this, but like, is there a top three, like when you see this thing, it's time to have an owned community <laughs> rather than only relying on, on external communities. Yeah, someone I mean, us a listicle, please. <laughs> <laughs> top three moments, you know. That would be really nice. <laughs> It's kind of the the article will be out on BuzzFeed as soon as we're done. <laughs> Appreciate that, PJ. At least from my perspective, I think uh, the first question I always ask is, where do your customers or your target audiences live, um, and and what are the attributes of them? Right. So, um, I think a good example here is is engineers and developers. Like developers are generally very comfortable with online collaboration platforms. So asking a developer to go to a forum or a Slack channel or somewhere like that is not a huge ask. Um, but then I, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was working with a construction union once, and, and these are like people who are running their own small construction businesses. They're doing paint and glass and things like that. Um, ask, expecting those folks to get onto a forum is pretty unlikely. Um, so we actually did a lot of email there because that was the most natural place. They spend most of their, their, their time on site with their phone actually the the dominant platform they were using was fax which blew me away um this was like three years ago this was a long time ago so i think there's an element of like where your audience uh lives but then the challenge i've got with um existing platforms like facebook groups and places like that is you just don't have a lot of uh control i don't mean that in a in a in a forceful way but you don't have a lot of um, ability to take data and to interface it with other platforms and things like that. So I think if you're right at the beginning of the journey and you've got an audience that's familiar with te technology platforms, then I generally recommend people to go for their own, build their own platform out. But if you've got a large audience and they're already somewhere else, then I'd just go there personally. I would add to that that, I, I mean, I think those are totally valid decisions for people to make if they're like, obviously I'm never going to be able to get people off of this platform, then there's a certain point where you don't want to be fighting that. But I think that one of the big misconceptions that people have when they're first getting started is actually just about like the size and breadth of a community. And what I encourage people to do is to start with a very small group of people. And I think when you're leading with a personal invitation, you actually plan to take a very high touch with maybe even as small as like 20 people off the bat, with a personal invitation, it's a lot easier to get people to do something that they're not super comfortable with if you're willing to take that like 15 minutes on a screen share to get them established in the new space. So I think when you start to think about focusing on something that's not running at scale because you're starting out, um, then it can kind of like shift the decision making a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree. You touched on an interesting point, both of you did, but Noelle, you mentioned this as well, that, you know, once you've got a, a good amount of people on one platform, <laughs> convincing them to move elsewhere can be difficult. Um, and I, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that, because I know for some companies, you know, they're actively moving people off of Slack, for instance, and onto discourse or things like that. And I'm I know I've heard from a lot of community managers specifically that that's a difficult thing to do. And there's always the risk of leaving people behind and people not joining you. And then you've quote unquote lost those community members and, and that whole scenario. Um, so I'd love to hear thoughts around like, you know, how do you, how do you advocate for moving from one platform to another? How do you, um, 
you know, if there's a strong enough reason for it, how do you then convince people to join you in the other place and make it a welcoming environment for them to be? Yes. So I have done this. Um, when I worked at Teachable, we had a really established community that was living on Facebook groups. And at a certain point, similar to what John was like alluding to, that you have this kind of disconnect where you can't really tell who those people are and you have this kind of black hole of analytics in platforms like this. So we decided to shift onto an owned platform. Um, and how I really ended up feeling about this is I wanted to make this massive shift away from quantity to quality. Um, so I just completely decided I'm no longer going to be sensitive to trying to create a space that feels really buzzy. And instead, I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket of trying to get people to share the most unique genius that they can. So it was way more important for me to have a member come in and say, like, this is the thing that only I know and that's going to get you, my peer, unstuck from the problem you're having versus having people be able to like chime into the conversation really easily. Like I actually wanted people that were willing to put in that extra effort. So it was a, a paradigm shift, but ended up being really beneficial. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, uh, Noel. I think it's, um, it's all, my view is um, only ever switch platforms if it's absolutely necessary. And because you lose so many people uh, and it's it's so culturally unusual and, and uncomfortable for most people. I just tend to look at it from a cost benefit analysis. Like, are we going to achieve so much more and be able to do so much more? Um, and, and it's going to be worth it enough that losing those folks in the way is okay. Um, and it, for me personally, I rarely recommend it unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, so yeah. Yes, this ties kind of nicely into our final kind of round robin question that we'll throw out to everyone in the group for a, a short answer. Um, feel free to take some of the the tales that you just shared with us or, or something else altogether. But um, we'd love to know from everyone actually on the call, what's the number one thing you need to be wary of when considering creating an online community? Um, I will start quickly and just say, um, similarly to the last points that were brought up about, you know, potentially needing to shift people over, just choose wisely. Um, identifying, let's just assume the need for a community has been determined, choose wisely. And I very clearly, I've been hurt in the past, but like, be careful with Slack as your first choice. <laughs> That's all I'll say. If you want to take that offline with me, I'd be happy to chat about it. Um, I'll hand it over to um, Noelle. Okay, my number one word to the wise is probably consider bandwidth and scope. Um, so I think it's always better to try to do something really small really well when you start versus thinking like I'm gonna serve every corner of my audience with like all of these amazing huge programs. So unless you have a huge team. Mary, do you wanna jump in? Sure. It actually adds on to what Noelle said nicely. Um, I think starting small, including with, you know, the number of channels that you introduce or the, the categories that you introduce or things like that is important because you want to make sure that people see an active community. And so making sure that there's, you know, places that you're creating where people are active and engaged and then as the need arises for, hey, we need another category or another channel or another place for people to discuss this other topic, you can add those as, as those conversations start to grow and as the community is, is more involved in those places. 
about you, Jono? Uh, this is such a great question. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, pretty irritated with Noel because Noel said what I was going to say. Uh, so now I had to think of something else. Um, so I, I think what I would say is um, the number one thing that is always front of center for me that I think people often forget about is the value. Like, I think if you, if you can't construct a, a value proposition for your community members that really improves their lives um, and just showing up to a forum or a Slack channel isn't enough, like there's got to be a reason where they you know, an hour spent in your community is better than an hour spent outside of your community. It really helps them. Um, I'd say it's really critical to focus on that. And I, I I, think people should be a little wary about getting too into the weeds and and not spending enough time focusing on that value proposition. Because I, all too often I see people who, you know, they obsess over the platforms and the and content and the incentives, and they don't talk enough about what that value proposition is and make it super valuable for their members. PJ, I bet you have thoughts on this. I definitely do. Um, for me, the first thing, the, the biggest consideration when you're looking at creating a community is establish a code of conduct right away. Don't wait. Um, it's often a lot of times it's very difficult to establish the, the rules and regulations when things have already gone in a certain direction or the community feels a certain sense of ownership over it. If you establish a code of conduct beforehand and you have these rules very clearly laid out, people understand the boundaries of the community, what they can and cannot do. You're saving yourself a lot of trouble in the long run. So whenever you're looking to create a community, whether it's, you know, for your organization, your organization has its own code of conduct and you're carrying that over, make it clear make it concise, make it easy to find and easy to read. Um, if it's, you know, a brand new thing where there's never been a community before or the organization doesn't have its own code of conduct, research it and figure it out before you start asking people to join that community. It really helps to make a more open, inviting and safe environment for everyone. And it gives you a whole set of steps to take should something go sideways and things will go sideways. This is the way the world works. So good. That was that was kind of like what I was gonna go into. Yes, I'm say, so glad I went before Wesley. <laughs> I would say plan <laughs> for the most vulnerable person or people in your community when creating it. But since that was taken, I'm gonna say make sure that the feedback loop is created and established. Um, because community is ever evolving. You want to make sure that you're listening to your community. You want to make sure that you're implementing and then rolling out all of the changes so the community continues to grow and um, move in the direction that everyone wants to take it, which may not be the direction that the powers that be say that they want to go. But um, if you want to keep a, a community sustainable, you need to make sure that it's serving the people who are members. Uh, so... Moving on from that, uh, we're gonna go ahead and close out the show. And we usually do uh, is checkouts. Uh, this is the part of the show where we mention some things that we've seen or heard around the internet. And uh, we're gonna go first with PJ. All right, so, uh, so a lot of people probably don't know the mechanics of how this works out, but sometimes we have checkouts that we're ready to do, 100% ready to go. Then other times we have checkouts that are like at the very last minute. but. I've listened to a lot of music this week. I was doing a lot of content development, so I've listened to a lot of music this week. And I couldn't pick just one, but I, I finally did. Uh, Liz Fair came out with a brand new EP, or you could call it a maxi single. It's two songs. I don't know how music distribution works anymore at all. But I would call it an EP, and I would buy it. It's called Spanish Doors, um, and it's a couple songs that she put together. Um, being you know a child of the 90s, Liz Fair, I'm a huge fan. Uh, she answered me like three times on Twitter, so I feel like we're friends. So full disclosure, like absolutely. 
Liz Fair and I are totally friends and I'm advocating <laughs> for her new music here on the podcast, but that's my checkout. Liz Fair's Spanish Doors. Okay. Just remember, just because she responded to you, you're not in the same community. We are uh, though. We are though. <laughs> <laughs> nice callback. Let's, let's move it on to you, Mary. What is your checkout? Sure. So I've been going through this uh, management course called Demystifying Management. Um, it's by Lara Hogan. And I've actually been going through it at work with um, my direct report, who's one of my direct reports, who's a manager, and our my manager, our CTO. Um, and it's been a really great exercise in uh, learning together and also learning each other's management styles, which has been cool. But the the work is set up in a really approachable way. Um, there's some videos to watch. There's some homework to do. And I just, I highly recommend it for anyone who's in management or interested in getting into management. Awesome. That's a great checkout. Now to you, SJ. Thanks. Um, I heard Maya in the background there, Mary. So she clearly wants to do some management training with you. Right? <laughs> true. It's true. Um, um, so mine, uh, you can count on me to have the silliest checkout, generally speaking. Um, mine this week is a comedian named Meg Stalter. Um, she's on Twitter. She's on Instagram, neither of which are communities. And um, she is um, someone who started doing a lot of Instagram lives at the beginning of the, um, of the pandemic. And she just takes on these personas and she's just completely ridiculous, so over the top a flavor of humor I have never quite experienced. Like I just, I am in physical pain of laughter after watching her Instagram live. So please follow her. And then you could get an idea of the bizarre humor that I think is uh, funny out there and know who helped me survive this pandemic. And she's still doing them fairly regularly. So that's mine. She's really hilarious. Um, and I'm going to be the one in the checkouts to for to kind of move this into a serious tone. Uh, my checkout is uh, an article that was written in the New York Times. Uh, it's called An NDA Was Designed to Keep Me Quiet. It was written by uh, Afoma Ozuma. Um, she did tech policy and was she was at Pinterest, she was at Facebook, she was at Google. Um, but it's really touching on the subject of how NDAs are meant to stifle um, your freedom of speech about saying, this is bad, this is horrible. And it's not protecting, you know, IP or industry trade secrets. It's made just to quiet and shut people up. And California's legislature is going, um, uh, looking at starting hearings on the Silence No More Act. And so hopefully this will help to tear down that infrastructure um, that's meant to oppress people who don't have the power of these large million or multi-billion dollar corporation. So I, I wanted to point people in that direction. It's a, it's and a great so, pace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Jono's there, but I'm going to, before we go to Jono, I'm going to go to Noel. Noel, what is your checkout? Okay. So I'm going to go, I got a color outside the lines on this one a little bit. So I just moved out of, uh, I lived in a big city for the past 10 years and now I move, I live in a very rural area. So I'm going to tell you, check out gardening. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, I feel like I'm getting away with something that I can actually grow things in dirt or in my yard. And it's unbelievable. You can like start seeds in a plastic bag on like a paper towel and they just thrive and they do great. So if you want to get off the internet and not go to any links, try some gardening. 
I love that. <laughs> Jono, your turn. I was going to um, say that gardening is growing in popularity, but. Uh, Wesley, we've got oh. rules about these things. This <laughs> <laughs> is a controversial topic here. <laughs> so I, I have a couple of things that um, just struck me. Um, uh, I just discovered this new platform called topia.io, um, which is kind of like a. Um, it's a it's a place where you can um, I'm blanking on the word. It's basically where you um, you can have kind of audio video conversations and it's spatial spatial audio and video and it's really kind of cool. It's quite new. Um, I'm also a big fan of this uh, email platform called Superhuman because I'm I suck at email and it makes me suck less at email. Um, uh, the founder of Superhuman is this guy called Rahul Vora who's um, wrote this amazing article about product market fit and this might not seem relevant to community but it's more about how you can do a survey and then how you can slice that survey in different ways to really understand what your audience are telling you i definitely recommend everyone goes and checks that out and then two other real quick things one is there's a book called the obstacle is the way which i reread recently um, and i actually have stacks of them in my office and i give them copies of them to people who are going through a bit of a rough patch like a friend of mine um, you know, was made redundant. Another friend of mine ha was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's just a real, it can be a real pick me up in, in when you, people are going through those really rough times. And then finally, um, just a kind of a fun little story. I, 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 I started this music project called Baron Carter, and I'm not saying this for self promotional reasons. What I'm saying here is I recorded the music in here and then it was mixed in Denmark and, you know, the person who did the album, art uh, did it in Finland and I hired some people on Fiverr um to help with some of this stuff and it just made me realize what's possible with your computer you know we've been, been going we've been going through this horrible pandemic um but there's a whole world out there so if you create art or if you create music or whatever it might be it's just a, don't limit yourself to your local area if 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 if, if you want to create something so i love that Awesome. And I'd also just love to jump in with one other call out for folks that are listening that are interested in kind of learning more about the foundations of community management. My big project is this program called C-School, and it's a cohort-based course that my company runs for folks that are trying to pivot into the career of community management. So for folks that are out there that are like, you guys are so cool and I want to do this job, <laughs> then that's a great way to do it. I think there'll be links in the show notes. There will definitely be links in the show notes. Um, make sure you know that you check everything out on our checkouts. Before we end everything, Jono, Noel, I would like to say thank you so much. Uh, I think your insight has really helped us kind of move the conversation along. Um, I like to think that we're going to resolve something every episode, but we don't. I think our job is to start conversations. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, Thank you to from my fellow hosts, SJ, Mary, and Wesley. Thanks to Jason, who's doing everything in the background. <clears throat> Thanks to all of you who are watching on YouTube or paying attention on Twitter or listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we always like to hear your feedback. Feel free to hit us up at Community Pulse on Twitter um, or at Community underscore Pulse on Twitter or head over to CommunityPulse.io, email us, whatever. I think we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, as a lot of people know, like I'm a big hip hop fan. I think this comes up every episode and we did lose a very big person in the hip hop community last week, DMX. Um, what a lot of people don't know is what he did for the hip hop community itself was actually greater than the music that he produced. Sometimes he had a very big heart when it came to community community and he used his platform to make other people better. Um, so as we usually close out with a quote, I think that it's really important to focus on something a lot of people miss when, especially when it comes to, uh, 
when especially when it comes to hip hop. And that quote from DMX is, and it ain't even about the dough. It's about getting down for what you stand for, yo, for real. And with that, thank you for hanging out this episode of Community Pulse, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe, everybody. This has been Community Pulse. Learn more at communitypulse.io and on Twitter at community underscore pulse. Your hosts are Mary Thangball, Mary underscore Grace on Twitter, Jason Hand, Jason Hand on Twitter, PJ Haggerty, Asplenic on Twitter, SJ Morris, Sarah Jane Morris on Twitter, and Wesley Faulkner, Wesley83 on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.